Hey everybody, welcome back to my podcast, Anatomy and Physiology Bit by Bit. This is your host, Dr. Steve Sullivan, coming to you from the suburbs of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, where I teach anatomy and physiology at Bucks County Community College. So first off, I just want to say uh, thank you for your patience. I have been out for a little while, have not produced a podcast in a couple of weeks, mainly because of the current situation here in the U.S. and the rest of the world around the coronavirus and COVID-19 crisis. I have been quarantined in my home, just like most of us. We're, We're staying home. We are trying to keep our social distances from each other. We're um, teaching online uh, only. And so since I've been teaching online A&P for about 12 years, um, it was relatively simple for me to move my face-to-face class online, except for the fact that I had to change all my exams to be open book exams because there are no proctors available now. So I have been pretty busy in terms of retrofitting my face-to-face class and my online exams to make sure that my students are getting a good quality course um, despite the problems that are going on right now. In addition to that, um, you know, my two kids who are both in school are home, so we've been um, trying to do crisis learning. We're not really homeschooling, we're crisis schooling, which means that we are trying to facilitate the schooling that they normally would do um, with the great help of their school district, who is putting together online learning materials. All of their teachers are putting together online learning materials and doing distance learning, and they've done a fantastic job here at the Central Bucks School District uh, where we live. So a um, big shout out to to them. So I want to apologize for not putting on any podcasts in those times. Uh, I have been doing all those things. And in addition, I've been spending a lot of time um, communicating with other anatomy and physiology instructors who have not been doing online A&P. So I've been trying to do my part in helping other people get their courses online, uh, doing webinars and um, uh, one-on-one Zoom sessions with other instructors, trying to help them get materials. I've been putting together some websites that I can share some of my online materials with with instructors so that we can all get through this crisis together and give the best A&P experience we possibly can at this time. So uh, so that's what I've been doing for the last couple of weeks. I haven't had a lot of time to sit down and put an episode together. So, um, so I'm here now and uh, I want to continue on with the skeletal system. So um, I want to first go through an email I got, a question from Kyle from Portland, Oregon. And uh, thanks, Kyle, for reaching out and emailing. I appreciate your support and patience. And Kyle asked, what's the best uh, version of a calcium supplement? So we are talking about the skeletal system and bones. So that's that's a great question. I do want to say, however, that I am not um, I'm not a big fan of recommending any kind of supplement over podcast because not all supplements are the same and they're not all safe for everyone. So if you are looking to take a calcium supplement, um, you should definitely 
talk to your healthcare provider because um, there are drug interactions and there are some people who, who will do better off with some depending on their their stomach acidity. Um, so it's, it's, I don't really want to um, say that there's the best supplement for everybody is X because that's probably not the case and everybody's a little bit different and I want to make sure that nothing is harmful to, uh, to anybody out there. I will say though, that one thing that we're going to learn about today in today's podcast um, is that vitamin D is necessary for calcium absorption, and also calcium is best absorbed in an acidic environment in your stomach and lower intestine. I'm sorry, your stomach and small intestine. So um, I would say that make sure you're not taking your calcium supplements in the form of an antacid, like Tums with calcium or Rolaids with calcium, because those those products decrease your stomach acid, which makes the calcium less absorbable. Um, so, uh, so I would say that is probably the best thing to keep in mind. And then also, if you are taking a calcium supplement, supplement that is calcium carbonate, make sure you take that with meals because eating will increase your stomach acid. And the stomach acidity is really, really best when it comes to calcium carbonate. So I'm not going to tell anyone which supplement to take. If you're already taking one, those are my recommendations, but make sure you talk to your own healthcare provider because there are drug interactions and there are other people um, who have underlying conditions where the supplements might actually be dangerous. So make sure you talk to your healthcare provider. But thank you, Kyle, for asking that question. That's a good one. All right. So on today's episode, we're going to cover a few things. We're going to get into um, the difference between compact bone and spongy bone. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the way bones respond to your weight-bearing activity, which is called Wolf's Law. And then we're going to talk about ho mineral homeostasis, how our bodies maintain our blood levels of calcium and phosphorus um, so that we can have uh, these, these minerals available for the other things that they do, like um, muscle contraction for calcium, Calcium also involved in exocytosis of neurotransmitters, meaning the release of neurotransmitters by neurons. And then also phosphate, we know, is the huge component in ATP, adenosine triphosphate. So uh, that is our body's energy currency. So um, let's start off with compact bone and spongy bone. Let's do it. Let's start with compact bone, which is typically found in the periphery of a bone referred to as the cortex. Compact bone is dense and strong. Its mineralized matrix is arranged into concentric cylinders. That means that larger cylinders completely surround smaller cylinders. Each unit of compact bone is called an osteon, and it's a series of these progressively larger cylinders surrounding a hollow space in the center called the central canal. The cylinders are called concentric lamellae. Lamellae means thin layers. Between the concentric lamellae, you'll find the collagen fibers that provide flexibility to the osseous tissue. If we use a long bone as an example, blood vessels and nerves enter the bone through either the nutrient foramen, 
in the diaphysis, or via other vessels in the epiphysis and metaphysis. Those blood vessels and nerves branch out and enter perforating canals that lead to a central canal. Central canals of adjacent osteons are linked to one another by more perforating canals, and that creates a consistent blood supply and nerve innervation throughout the tissue. Surrounding all these osteons along the circumference of the bone are different lamellae, and they're called circumferential lamellae. In between the osteons are lamellae called interstitial lamellae. Spongy bone is also known as both cancellous bone and trabecular bone. The osseous matrix is not densely packed together like it is in compact bone. Rather, there are marrow-filled spaces in between the calcified matrix, causing it to resemble a sponge. Typically, we find spongy bone in between the compact bone of flat bones, short bones, and irregular bones. In long bones, spongy bone fills the epiphyses and metaphyses, and it lines the marrow cavity. A unit of spongy bone is called a trabecula, the plural of which would be trabeculi. Some trabeculi have pointed structures called spicules. Each trabecula has its own parallel lamellae that have similar features to osteons, like osteocytes and lacunae, and canaliculi, but they don't surround a central canal. The outermost lamella is surrounded by osteoblasts and a few osteoclasts. Because of this orientation, spongy bone is strong and light. While it's less dense than compact bone, the arrangement of the trabeculae, which is called the trabecular pattern, is an engineering feat much like that of an arch. Whereas the arch distributes forces to the strongest parts of a bridge, the trabeculae distribute forces to the compact bone of a long bone. Let's take the femur for example. The force of gravity being exerted on our body's core is a straight line above the earth. But the femurs articulate with the hips laterally. Then they angle themselves back toward the knees. You'd expect the neck of the femur to be at a big disadvantage when it comes to holding the body up. However, the trabecular pattern in the spongy bone of each femoral head and neck distributes the forces toward the compact bone of the femur's cortex. It goes down the knee and over the weight-bearing tibia. When bones remodel themselves in response to the weight-bearing forces that we put on them, it's typically the trabecular pattern that gets updated first. Conversely, when bone density decreases, like in osteoporosis, for example, it's the spongy bone that suffers the most. In fact, one of the most common injuries associated with osteoporosis is a fractured femoral neck, which lay people refer to as a broken hip. It can result as a complication from bone density loss combined with normal weight-bearing. Way back in the 1800s, a surgeon from Germany named Julius Wolff discovered that in a healthy person, the load, the weight-bearing load that you put on your bones will actually determine the 
way the bones will remodel themselves. So they will adjust their trabecular pattern and density of the compact bone according to the amount of, of weight-bearing activity and weight-bearing load that you put on those bones. So this is one of the reasons why you hear people say that you should exercise, do weight-bearing exercise to increase bone density. And when astronauts go up into space for long periods of time and there's no gravity, there's no weight-bearing activity. So they can actually lose bone density while they're up there. This is called Wolf's Law because of Julius Wolf, the German anatomist and surgeon who discovered it. Kind of interesting. All right, so that kind of leads us to mineral homeostasis because by the breaking down and deposition of bone tissue, we're using calcium and phosphorus in the form of phosphate from our bloodstream. So our bones actually serve as a storage place for these minerals. So it's important to talk about how our bodies regulate the levels of these minerals in our bloodstream because we know we also need them for other things. So for instance, I said earlier, we use calcium ions for cardiac and skeletal muscle contractions. They stimulate exocytosis, so neurotransmitters can be released from our neurons. Uh, and they're also important in blood clotting. So it's important that we maintain a steady supply of calcium in the blood's plasma to make sure that these vital functions can take place without interruption. Uh, phosphate ions, as we know, are also part of our ATP molecules um, that we use for our energy currency. And they contribute to the regulation of our body's acid-base balance as well. So that's an important function of phosphorus. It doesn't seem to be as big a deal clinically when phosphorus levels are low and in the blood. So we're not going to really focus on that too much. We're going to stick to calcium homeostasis because that's a much bigger deal uh, for us. And calcium homeostasis is way more than just the skeleton. Uh, the kidneys, the liver, the digestive tract, the skin, and the endocrine system are all involved in calcium homeostasis. So we're going to discuss the roles of three different hormones that regulate the levels of calcium in our blood's plasma. Keep in mind that our calcium supply comes from our diet and it's stored in our bones. And when it comes to the bones, the basic rule is that in order to raise blood calcium levels, we have to remove it from the osseous tissue of our bones. Conversely, lowering blood calcium levels means depositing calcium into the osseous tissue of our bones. On average, a healthy adult human has a calcium level between 8.9 and 10.1 milligrams per deciliter of blood. Since the suffix referring to blood is emia, E-M-I-A, low calcium levels in the blood would be called hypocalcemia, while high calcium levels would be hypercalcemia. Let's start with the two hormones that have the biggest impact on calcium levels, calcitriol and parathyroid hormone. Calcitriol is the most active form of vitamin D. The synthesis of calcitriol results from a series of steps carried out by multiple organs. First, ultraviolet light from the sun stimulates the keratinocytes of the epidermis to convert a steroid called 7-dehydrocholesterol into a molecule called pre-vitamin D3. Continued exposure to the sun will further convert pre-vitamin D3 
to vitamin D3, which is also known as cholecalciferol, and that enters the blood's plasma. As it travels through the circulation, the liver converts vitamin D3 to calcidiol by adding a hydroxyl group to the molecule. And then the kidneys add yet another hydroxyl group to calcidiol, converting it into calcitriol. Now, calcitriol functions as a hormone. It's a chemical messenger in the blood's plasma that promotes the resorption of bone tissue, meaning that bone tissue breaks down and calcium ions are released into the blood, keeping blood levels of these minerals within a normal range. It does this by stimulating stem cells to develop into osteoclasts, the osseous cells that break down osseous matrix. Now that's not the only way that calcitriol maintains blood calcium levels. It also makes sure that calcium in our diet can be absorbed by the small intestine of our digestive tract. And it promotes the reabsorption of calcium ions by our kidneys so we don't lose too much in the urine. Even though it seems kind of counterintuitive because calcitriol promotes bone resorption, by keeping our levels of calcium and phosphate within normal ranges in the blood, it's also really important to make sure that bone can be deposited properly. So low levels of vitamin D can actually decrease bone density. Remember, calcitriol is a form of vitamin D. The other two hormones associated with mineral homeostasis are parathyroid hormone and calcitonin. Parathyroid hormone, which is also known as PTH, is secreted by the four parathyroid glands, each about the size of a grain of rice, which are found adjacent to the posterior of the bilateral lobes of the thyroid gland. Parathyroid hormone is secreted in response to the slightest drop in calcium levels and acts in four different ways. The first two are just like calcitriol. PTH stimulates stem cells of osseous tissue to differentiate into osteoclasts, and it limits calcium loss in the urine. So those two ways are just like calcitriol. It also targets the kidneys to promote the final step of calcitriol synthesis, adding that last hydroxyl group. And then finally, it inhibits the secretion of osseous matrix by osteoblasts. So that's four different ways that parathyroid can be a very powerful increaser of blood calcium. And then the last thing is calcitonin. That's the other hormone. This is from the thyroid gland. It opposes the action of parathyroid hormone. It's not that big a deal in adults, but it is important in children. It promotes bone deposition in children because it makes sure that when calcium levels are high, calcitonin inhibits osteoclastic activity and promotes osteoblastic activity. In kids, the osteoclastic activity is really, really high because they're constantly remodeling their bones in response to their activity as their bones grow. And that can make their blood calcium levels really high. So calcitonin will help keep those blood calcium levels lower in kids. It's not as big a deal in adults. But by increasing bone deposition and limiting bone resorption, it can keep blood calcium levels down. You may have noticed that in some of the groceries we buy and consume, like cow's milk and breakfast cereals, you'll see something that says fortified with vitamin D. That's the reason that calcitriol is a hormone and a vitamin. It's, called, it's a vitamin basically because it's consumed in our diet. 
But without the adequate vitamin D absorption, uh, which can be caused by dietary insufficiencies or inadequate exposure to the sun's ultraviolet light, we are susceptible to bone-softening diseases. In kids, we call this rickets. And rickets can cause a bowing of the weight-bearing bones of the lower limb because they're softer, the bone density is lower, the bones are softer, and they bow in response to weight-bearing. They kind of bend. In adults, we call this osteomalacia, which is bone softening. And it can make people more susceptible to fractures and, and things like that, um, which is pretty dangerous. So I think that's pretty much a good amount to do for this particular episode of the podcast. I think we will have another episode on the skeletal system coming up where maybe we talk about the way bones form embryonically, the way they grow once we're born, and also how fractures repair themselves. I think that those would be good topics for the skeletal system to wrap it up. Uh, so I hope that this uh, podcast has helped you learn a few things about the skeletal system. And I hope that you are handling this coronavirus crisis well. I wish health and wellness to all of you and all of your loved ones. Stay safe. Make sure you're following all the rules that we're all trying to follow right now. And I will see you next time. Hey, everyone. Don't forget to check out my YouTube channel, Student Help for AP. That's student, the number four, AP. There's lots of tutor videos on there that I think could really help you. And I also have an Instagram account and a Twitter feed with the same name. Please also don't forget to rate this podcast and review it if you possibly can. Anatomy and Physiology Bit by Bit is a production of Minus 55 Media with a special thanks to Bucks County Community College and my family. <laughs>